0: Before we begin, here's a quick message from our Spotify sponsor. Hello, hello, Sunshine Wilder fans. Welcome back. Uh, My voice is a little bit strange today because I've been sick for weeks now. (laughs) Um, So forgive me if I'm a little bit off today. But um, I did want to come to you with a topic today that I feel like is very important. And it is codependency. And I think we have an idea about how codependency shows up in relationships and how it looks. But I think that that idea is kind of predicated on a pop culture. And we say, oh, they're so codependent. Like, they're so dependent on each other. Which I guess in the very basic form of the definition of codependency is kind of true. But I also think that we are very much lacking a real fundamental understanding of codependency how it shows up in relationships, and why it's not love, okay? So that's what we're gonna dive into today. So first and foremost, uh, codependency is how we think love looks when we have never experienced real love. A lot of us have not experienced genuine love, and we don't even know it until much, much later in our lives. And a lot of the times it's because of childhood traumas that we've experienced or blocks in the way that we are able to trust others. There are so many different reasons why we end up adopting a codependent lifestyle. And as we go on, I'll touch on all of those. The main reason is that our parents likely didn't model healthy love for us. So we had no reference for what that looked or felt like as children and as we grew up and continued to watch those relationships or watch that relationship, we didn't ever see what a healthy, authentic relationship was supposed to look like. So codependency shows up in many ways depending on our deficit and needs. So codependency doesn't just show up in one way and look similarly all the time. There are many ways it sort of seeps and sneaks into relationships. Codependency is a tool that we use in our adult lives to get the needs met that we didn't have met as children a lot of the time. So again, this comes into play. We did not have our needs met as children. We did not figure out how to meet our own needs because that was also likely not modeled to us. So, the next best thing is what we figure out that someone else can somehow meet our needs for us. It's just the logical conclusion whenever you don't have a model to reference in this case. And so, most commonly, what happens is we abandon ourselves in order to participate in codependent relationships, either by giving up ourselves in order to get our needs met or by breaking personal boundaries and not being truthful with ourselves in what we're willing to do or give up in order to get our needs met. There's a reason that we do this and quite simply, the reason that we're doing this is because we're looking for connection. We're looking for love. We're looking for what we think is authentic human relations. It's just unfortunate that, again, we didn't have a model, so we don't know. We're just, you know, bumbling through life and trying to figure it out, and this is what we come up with. So it's, it's likely not your fault. Um, don't take any blame for participating in codependent relationships. You likely don't even know that you're doing it, but it is your responsibility to address it because no one is coming to save you but you. And that's true in everything that I talk about in all of the podcasts and everything I write on my website. It all comes down to you. So as we continue on about codependency, we realize that codependency thrives in environments predicated on something called enmeshment. So I am going to read to you Wikipedia's definition of enmeshment. Enmeshment is a description of a relationship between two or more people in which personal boundaries are permeable and unclear. This often happens on an emotional level in which two people feel each other's emotions or when one person becomes emotionally escalated and the other family member does as well. So enmeshment is basically a term that describes what happens when we have no boundaries. So there is no definition where I begin and end, and where you begin, and you end in our families. And we all end up kind of absorbing each other's emotions and trying to become one entity, when really, that's the worst thing we can do. We really need to remember that we are separate entities trying to work together in the family unit. So according to Live Well with Sharon Martin, Characteristics of enmeshed families are a lack of boundaries, children not encouraged to individuate and become emotionally independent, intrusive or needy quality to relationships, oversharing or demands to know all about your life, you're expected to conform to family norms and traditions, self-expression is stifled, parents may treat children as friends or confidants, it's not acceptable to have opinions, beliefs, or ideas that differ from the family. Fierce loyalty is also expected, and guilt and shame are used to maintain this status quo. So that was copyrighted in 2019 by Sharon Martin, LCSW. Thank you for that, Mrs. Martin. Um, so enmeshment, if we go back to that topic, it's very clear That it is a, a dysfunctional way in which a family communicates, operates, and, unfortunately, loves. So when we are growing up in an environment that's predicated on enmeshment, we naturally are conditioned to... Participate in the codependency that is already thriving within our family dynamic of enmeshment. Basically, the parents inadvertently are teaching the children how to be codependent right off the bat because they're expecting the children to meet their unmet needs because they, as parents and people and human beings, never figured out how to have their needs met. And so the cycle continues down the family line and we have all of this enmeshment and we have all of this codependency which people confuse for real love. Excuse me. So that's what we're going to touch on later is that codependency and real love are not the same thing and they really can't coexist side by side. Okay? You can still love a person who is in codependency. However, it's very crucial that both of you start working on yourselves in order to get out of this codependent mechanism, or else you'll never be able to really experience true intimacy. So let's go into that a little deeper. But before that, I do want to share with you quickly signs of a codependent relationship. So that way you'll be able to identify it in your life and see if any of these things apply to you. These signs were given to me by, or well, I saw them on Psych Central and the holistic psychologist online. So that is the source for these signs of a codependent relationship. One, obsessing over a partner's behavior. So I'm assuming that means people um, being obsessed about what their partner is doing, saying, where, where were you? Where are you? What are you doing? Where are you going? Why is your tone like that? You know, um, things of that nature trying to control, change or fix someone. So we know that a lot of women fall into this category. A lot of the times, we subconsciously think that we are loving someone by trying to control, change or fix someone. And that is just quite honestly, not the case. So if we're trying to control, change, or fix someone, we're not allowing that person to learn on their own and come to their own conclusions and walk down their own path. So that is also not a healthy mechanism. Enabling. Enabling is also a big one, a sign of codependent relationship. Again, we think we're trying to love a person, usually by enabling them and enabling their behavior and their actions, and really, that is not the loving thing to do. Fear of abandonment. Fear of abandonment is a big one that shows up with codependency. Self-abandonment, which means you are willing to give up yourself or put everyone else ahead of you before you address anything with yourself, or that you just never address yourself. So you're abandoning what you need, in order to give other people what they need, self abandonment, thinking you cannot live without a person. So that's one that I actually added, because I have been in a codependent dynamic before. And in these codependent dynamics, we often think that we Quite literally cannot live without a person. We cannot make it. If we did not have them, we don't know what we would do. There's just a very, very strong connective feeling thinking you cannot live without a person. And unfortunately, a lot of young people especially get this confused with what love is, because that drive that draw that thinking you need someone and you can't live without them is so strong that people often confuse it for love. A lack of boundaries, a lack of this is me and that's you, is a bad thing in general. People-pleasing, attempting to kind of give people what they want in order to not rock the boat. This is a form of self-abandonment because you're not honoring your true feelings deep within. You're just trying to people please and keep everything going nice and calm, either because the family dynamic demands it or because that's what makes you feel comfortable. Either way, not a good thing. Low self-esteem. Many people that interact with codependent, other codependent people or participate in codependency often have really low self-esteem. They also have a lack of um, interpersonal skills. And they also don't know what love is. So low self-esteem. Someone who is described as a taker. Someone who is constantly take, take, taking from other people or relationships without giving anything back. That is also a sign. Lack of empathy for yourself or others. That is also a key sign. And lastly, sense of entitlement. So if you have a sense of needing to, or, well, not needing... But feeling entitled to a person or their um, interaction, feeling entitled to other people in general, feeling entitled to other people's time or emotions or feelings or support or whatever, that's a sign that you're you're likely um, engaging in codependency. So... Now that you know that the signs and you can kind of see if any of those fit along with you, we can move forward into, well, how does codependency actually show up in relationships? And I think it's important to understand that really the reason it shows up is because people are looking for authentic connection. They're not trying to harm you um, cognitively. They're not trying to... Uh, con you, persuade you, harm you, they are seeking authentic connection and really just don't have any idea how to go about it other than codependency. So knowing that it comes from that, we recognize that abandonment wounds are typically where codependency shows up. Also in that same vein, lack of self love is where codependency shows up. So how does it show up with abandonment wounds. Okay, so if we felt we were abandoned as young children, or, you know, somewhere in our childhood, we recognize that, oh, somehow this had to have been my fault. Now that is faulty thinking. But that is what the child brain does in order to cope with whatever they were experiencing at the time of the abandonment. So when we have an abandonment wound, and we start to put all of that pressure and blame on ourselves, we also are terrified of doing anything that could cause that abandonment in the future. Since we perceive that it was our fault, we want to mitigate that problem by saying, okay, I never want to do anything that would cause anybody to leave me ever again. And so in abandonment wounds, we start Doing people pleasing behaviors, we might do the self abandonment where we just say, "Well, I'm going to put everybody's needs ahead of mine," so that way they can't leave. Um, thinking you cannot live without a person kind of comes with that because you're like, "Oh, I need them. Hopefully, they need me." You know, you don't want to be abandoned. So there's a whole lot that goes into all of the the signs of codependency that I just shared. Um, from the holistic psychologist in Psych Central, and the how it shows up in our lives and through what wounds that we are carrying with us. So through the abandonment wound, that is how codependency is showing up. Uh, similarly, in a lack of self love, it's it's a very similar thing. We are not able to love ourselves well because we weren't modeled that as children we typically grew up around people who didn't love themselves. How could they love other people if they don't love themselves? How can they model self love to other people when they have not experienced that themselves? So if you have a general lack of self love, or an ability to accept love from others or yourself, that is going to be a problem in codependency. Because you want to believe that you can be loved. You want to believe that that's true. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you don't necessarily believe that. And so you're willing to do whatever it takes to get those needs met by somebody else in the codependent relationship. Again, I'm going to touch back on enabling So enabling is when we do things to allow someone else to continue to do harmful things, whether it's to themselves or to others, because we think we're helping them. That is another issue. So you have to recognize that enabling someone to do things that are harmful to themselves or others is not helping, even if it's pacifying, it's not helping. Now, this enabling does not apply to people who have been through abuse. So when you are in an abusive situation and your safety is actively threatened by someone, to appease them by using enabling behaviors is not the same because it will, it's the same thing but it is important to recognize that you had to participate in those enabling de- behaviors and that codependent relationship in order to preserve your safety and your survival. So that is very important to understand. Do not be down on yourself or feel shame for enabling someone or or going into that situation of abuse with a people pleasing behavior or attitude in order to pacify that person so that you can maintain your survival because that is what you needed to do at the time of your abusive situation in order to survive. And that's all that any of us can do. That just means you're a human being and you're trying to survive what happened to you. However, We do need to recognize that enabling in our adult life, when we're now in a safe situation, in a safe space, needs to be dismantled or else we will continue enabling behavior as adults towards other people who we might even perceive to be a threat and are not a threat. So we still have to dismantle the enabling and people-pleasing behaviors. Next is the rescue complex that we touched on. And I feel like this shows up a lot for, again, women who uh, and men, I suppose, who really want to show their value to a partner by swooping in and saving the day. And unfortunately, we can't show our value in this way because it is so important for people to remain autonomous. They have to make their own mistakes. They have to walk their own path. They have to be their own person. Otherwise, we're just shaping their person. We are planning out and executing that path for them. And they are not authentically being who they are. And ultimately, they won't be able to be in relationship with us when we're controlling every aspect of their life through this rescue complex. So... It's so important that we allow other people to walk their paths and we, uh, we just let go of the notion that we need to rescue anyone else because really, at the end of the day, all we have control over, all we should have accountability for, and all we should have responsibility for is ourselves as adults. So we don't need to be responsible for anyone else but ourselves. That also does not apply to our children and other children, of course, but I'm talking about other adults. Okay, so now we know how codependency shows up in our relationships and examples of how that can happen. So the most important thing, I'm going to stress this again, is that all of this codependency stems from a desire for genuine connection and love. It's just that people don't know the difference between love and codependency. So how can we differentiate codependency from love? A lot of people are just sitting here. If they're in codependent relationships right now, they're like, I don't get it. I do not understand the difference between codependency and love. And it is very complex. There's a lot that goes into differentiating love from codependency, especially when you did not have authentic love modeled to you in your childhood and throughout your young adult years. So I want to start with how do boundaries affect codependency? Because if you listen to the last episode of the podcast, I talked about boundaries and their importance in relationships. So I'm going to briefly touch on that topic here. But if you want more in-depth information about boundaries, which are vital to have in any relationship, please go back and listen to the episode about boundaries. So how do boundaries affect codependency? Well, we learn as children that not only are boundaries not allowed and unhealthy in families who have the dynamic of enmeshment, but also boundaries mean you don't love someone. Let me expand on this. So this is a very common family dynamic, especially in America, where we've grown up in some form of enmeshment to some degree with our family members. And in that dynamic, the importance of staying loyal to that family group, and to not having boundaries is almost like monumental. Those are the two top things that enmeshed families are going to want you to participate in is loyalty to us no matter what and a commitment to the enmeshment that we are going through but also a commitment to having no boundaries and the way that this works is a mesh enmeshment cannot happen if people have strong boundaries because boundaries if we recall are the things that separate you from me they're the things that I am saying, it's okay for you to do this or not okay for you to do this with me in this relationship. So when somebody has strong boundaries and says, ah, oh, no, that's not cool with me, enmeshment cannot happen. Because in order to be enmeshed and in, in involved so closely in those feelings and just molding everybody's feelings, thoughts, emotions, actions together you know you cannot do that with people who have strong boundaries because they just will refuse to participate in the enmeshment so blind loyalty and no boundaries is very vital to that family dynamic and unfortunately a lot of us grow up in that family dynamic and have no idea that there's there's anything wrong with it so It sounds like it should be easy to recognize, but it always, it isn't always. And I'll give you a good example. So, if we want to see a problem with no boundaries in a family, and we don't even see that it's an issue, oftentimes in America, the way that we have been taught to rear children is kind of um, on that line of, No boundaries enmeshment. And what I mean is the mother is frequently expected to consistently perform all of the emotional tasks in the family and a lot of the physical tasks and mental tasks in the family as well. So often what happens with mothers, especially mothers who have um, children whose fathers are not actively participating in the family... So whether they're just not around much or whether they've abandoned the children completely or they're only seeing the children a limited amount of time or they're just seeing the children but they're not emotionally available, you'll see this dynamic as well. So a lot of the times we see mothers who are trying to make up for the absence of the father. Whether it be emotionally, physically, it doesn't matter. The mother will automatically try to make up for the father being absent by giving more. And that looks like more people pleasing and more enabling to our children. So oftentimes you'll see where a mother has very low boundaries and kind of um, lets the children get away with things, as other people would put it. Now I don't view it that way. However, our society will say, "Well, oh, that mom just lets her kids walk all over her," or "Oh, that mom lets her get her kids do anything," or "Oh, that mom lets her kids get away with everything." A lot of the time, the mom is thinking that they are providing emotional support for their children because the other parent is not as involved. But really what's happening, unfortunately, is that the children are learning that no boundaries is an okay thing to have because the mother is not putting up boundaries about certain issues Uh, as far as like rules and as far as uh, accountability and as far as personal respect, and as far as boundaries and respecting uh, other people and their boundaries and different things. And so a lot of the time, that's how we can see where a, a low boundary or no boundary relationship is harmful to children. And they don't learn that Boundaries are a good thing because even though the mother has good intentions, there's no doubt in my mind that most of these mothers have good intentions trying to be everything for their child, that they're actually missing, excuse me, one of the crucial points, which is we have to allow our children to walk the path. We have to allow our children to learn, sometimes even if it's the hard way. We have to put up boundaries And model for our children what boundaries look like. Even though sometimes the kids are going to not like that. Because children, especially before the age of eight, don't understand how to interact with other people. (laughs) They have not hit the developmental capacity or stage for empathy even until the age of eight. And so they don't know how to interact with other people. They're just here doing their thing in their little egomaniacal brains, (laughs) their little egocentric worlds until somebody comes along and says, hey, we shouldn't be doing this. This is how you're supposed to interact with your peers and with your parents and with these people. So they actually need boundaries modeled for them. They need someone to tell them, no, this is where I begin and end and this is where you begin and end or else they never really understand how that process works. And so frequently as these children become adults, they have very poor boundaries. They have very poor accountability. They don't understand why someone would behave a certain way and often feel quite entitled to things because that parent had provided everything for them thinking that they were really helping in the absence of the other parental figure only to figure out that that really wasn't the best choice and now we have children who are not able to participate in relationships properly because they don't have a good understanding of boundaries And they were a little bit enmeshed and they don't understand how relationships are supposed to work. And so that is a good example of how we think, you know, the intentions were good. We don't always see how the lack of boundaries is negatively impacting us until it gets to be to a certain point. Um, And of course, I mean, there's a lot of stories about enmeshment and abusive situations where the parent is forcibly... um, uh, causing the child to participate in the abuse uh, because it's threatening the child's safety. I mean, that's like clear, even abusive enmeshment uh, dynamic. I mean, that's a clear negative example of enmeshment. But I don't think we always have a clear positive, well, not positive, but a clear, not so negative example of enmeshment and how lack of boundaries can be very devastating to children and young adults as they go into the world and create their own relationships. So again, in this enmeshed dynamic, boundaries are not allowed, they're considered unhealthy, and they mean you don't love someone. Because generally, the parents have modeled that we love people By allowing them to cross our limits, by taking on more, by becoming a doormat, by providing everything we can, by people pleasing, that in enmeshed families is considered love. And it's unfortunate because a lot of us grow up thinking that that's the way we love others when really it is not. Okay, so that's how a lack of boundaries can affect codependency remember that boundaries separate me from you. So they allow us to express our needs in a clear, concise manner. Our boundaries are what we will allow and what we will not allow. And so if a child ends up with strong boundaries or a young adult ends up with strong boundaries, they're more likely to be independent and to not feel as entitled because they have been told no by other adults who have put up boundaries and said, No, I don't feel like doing that. Or no, that's not something that I, I value or no, you know, they're used to be to, to being told no, and used to this concept of you are you and you have your own thoughts and opinions and feelings. And I am me and I have my own thoughts, opinions and feelings. And each of us values different things. And each of us has our own right to say yes or no to different things, different situations and different people. And so that's really crucial in combating codependency. And strong boundaries, again, are just something that we have to have in order to have healthy relationships. So we've talked about the boundaries. Let's move on to how codependency can feel, because I think that a lot of us don't understand how it can be mixed up for love in some people's minds. And if we go with what codependency can feel like, and we start talking about the emotions behind it, I think everybody will get a clearer picture of how that is affecting everybody who is is kind of blurring codependency and love together. Unfortunately, our brains are wired to consider what is familiar to us as safe. So that's another point that I need to touch on. Even when these thought processes, feelings, and ways of living are not safe, our brain thinks familiarity equals safety. Let me give you an example. I felt comfortable for years in a state of fight or flight. It, in a weird way, Feels good after a while to be in a constant state of hypervigilance when you're used to all of that adrenaline pumping and all of that, you know, hype and all of that state of fight or flight. Because you get this sense that you can mitigate pain and threats through control and through being hypervigilant and being hyper aware. And the unfortunate truth is that we are not mitigating anything in that state of mind. We are only perpetuating our own suffering. However, our brain kind of tricks us into thinking that because this state of fight or flight is familiar, that means it's safe. And that means it is somehow protecting us all the time, constantly to be in that state. So there's an incentive for my brain to push me towards a path of anxiety, thinking that that's the safe way to go and the way to maintain our safety and survival, when in reality, it is not. So keep that in mind when we are discussing codependency, because if you've been in a codependent relationship a long time, or in enmeshment, or thinking that those are the only two ways of being able to be intimate and being able to be loved and express intimacy and love that's because your brain is familiar with it. It's comfortable with the codependency and the habits that you've formed. And it's going to continue to push you towards those things. And anything outside that realm of familiarity is going to feel bad at first, because it is unfamiliar. And the unknown and unfamiliar typically makes us feel very uneasy. So Many people utilize codependency not only as a way to meet their own needs, but as a way to avoid real intimacy. Okay. Now that seems counterproductive because it is. In codependency, there is a sense of control, a sense of commitment that we're willing to accept and participate in because it's predictable. It goes back to that predictability, that familiarity. In this way, we can agree to only meet the other person's immediate needs and ignore the work of actual intimacy building. So if we're just exchanging needs and swapping needs, we can ignore the deeper work of having to look at why we don't love ourselves, having to look at our own insecurities, having to look at why we feel bad in this codependent relationship whenever our needs aren't being met right? This allows us to feel in control and to keep people at arm's length. So we get to decide who has real access to us and who doesn't. Unfortunately, what is seen as protective is actually working to our own detriment. Because we're avoiding letting anyone in. And when we do that, especially those that are closest to us, It only sets our relationships up for failure and reaffirms our own low self-esteem beliefs of not being enough, not being lovable, or not being wanted. That's why it's so critical that we learn what real love and real intimacy are and how they show up in our lives. So that way we're not constantly tricking ourselves into going back to that familiar place and to not going back to avoidance. Of letting anyone in for fear that they will hurt us or that we will get hurt through losing them, through abandonment, or whatever it is that we're afraid of. Because we're only setting ourselves up for failure when we're not addressing ourselves. Okay. Additionally, we find someone whose needs that we can meet which are acceptable to us and vice versa. So we find someone in codependency whose needs that we can meet and are tolerable to us and that don't take a lot out of us. And on the other side, they feel the same way about us. And that's what makes a very strong codependent relationship. That's why the feelings in codependency can feel so intense. It feels so good to have our needs met, which have been ignored for so long because we don't know how to meet them and our parents didn't know how to meet them. And so to be able to do that for someone else also feels like love because that other person that we're being codependent with is also having needs met by us. And so it feels very intense because for the first time, both parties are likely, it's likely the first time, both parties are getting their needs met and without much resistance from the other because it's acceptable to each of us, we understand that our needs being met by the other person is not seen as a big hassle and vice versa. So when that happens, it can feel very intense, like, oh, this is so easy. We love each other so much. We're like so connected here. What we're not understanding is that having our needs met is not the same thing as loving someone. Having our needs met feels intense because we've been waiting all this time to have them met. Because they weren't met when we were children and in our young adulthood and in our other relationships. And so it feels very intense to have these relation, or to have these needs met for the first time in relationship, and for it to be so easy and to feel so effortless. And really, that's just how strong codependency can get. However, we are not experiencing true intimacy. Or love in those scenarios. This is just a a need swap, okay? In reality, we are exchanging needs for needs. And what happens is we become addicted to that cycle. However, as soon as needs aren't being met on one side or the other for whatever reason, sometimes we just start not being able to meet the other person's needs due to our own mental health. Or sometimes we don't want to meet the other person's needs anymore because the relationship is not what we wanted anymore. We recognize that we have more that we can add to the relationship and more that we can get out of a relationship that's healthy if we're not um, only doing the needs swapping. So as soon as the needs aren't being met on one side or the other for some reason, there's a huge issue typically. Either a partner begins lashing out withdrawing or going outside of the relationship to get those overwhelming needs met. So this is a very common scenario. Eventually, the relationship falls apart because a relationship cannot maintain on meeting each other's needs alone. It just can't. No relationship can survive that way. There's no love. There's no trust. There's no self-love. There's, there's really nothing there to hold the relationship together long term. And so, as soon as the needs aren't being met on one side or the other, we have a big issue Uh, because the partner whose needs are not getting met typically begins to lash out, or they begin to withdraw, or the other partner begins to withdraw because they feel so overwhelmed meeting the other person's needs. Or each party or one party ends up going outside of the relationship to get the overwhelming burden of needs met. So a lot of the time when our needs are met by a partner, they're only met for a short amount of time because that need becomes addictive and it only grows. And so a lot of the times the need for connection and craving and love, that other partner can only give us so much before we start looking for it outside of the relationship. Because we need it not only from our partner now, but we need it from this person who we talk to on the internet Or this person who is our close friend. Or this person who is an enabler and a people pleaser. We start seeking out other ways to get this addictive condition of needing to meet our needs met. And so uh, eventually, the relationship will fall apart because it can't withstand all of this, right? And a lot of the times you'll see um, one party especially I'll use my own case as an example. So when I was a young adult, I had a very intense codependent relationship and he and I thought we were in love and we ignored all of the red flags. I mean, I saw some of the red flags. I knew they were there, but it was too painful to try and deal with my real self, my real feelings, my, my needs and my need to not abandon myself. And I was also deathly afraid that he would leave. That I would be abandoned again if I tried to address any of the real issues. So what happened was I decided not to address any of the real issues within myself or within him or in the relationship in general. And I realized that I became more and more paranoid. I was more and more controlling. I wanted to know where he was every second because I also had this addictive need to get my needs met. I wanted him to meet my needs 24 seven. And he started to be able to inform me, either verbally or with his actions, that he wasn't going to be able to do that. And when that happened, I even had impulses to go elsewhere. But I had a very strong moral compass at the time. I'll say that. Um, It wasn't true morality, but it's what I thought was a moral compass. And my morality at the time did not allow me to even think about cheating or going outside of the relationship or trying to get those needs met in any other way other than through him. And so I just became more and more intense. But because I was having this addictive feeling to get my needs met, I started realizing he probably has that addictive feeling too. Because we're both exchanging these needs for each other to be met by one another. And so when I recognized that, I immediately thought he's going to cheat, he's going to cheat, he's going to cheat. And so that only fuels the fire of control. I would ask for his phone. I would go through his contacts. I would e- I, w- I even started going through his MySpace at the time, looking at the messages, talking to his friends. Is he talking to another woman? I started surfing um, you know, a lot of the match websites back then where it was that was how you did internet dating was online dating and I would look for his profile, it would look for him anywhere on the internet. And eventually one day, it happened. I saw him on dating profiles. I saw him talking to women. I I I, I got into his messages and saw where he had been, um, talking with other women in inappropriate ways, and I was so furious. We're always so furious with that other person's actions. Like, how could they do this to me? They, I, you know, and you start thinking I did everything to mitigate abandonment. I gave him everything he wanted. I even took control of the situation. So that way I knew what was happening. I knew what was going on. I was protecting myself. How could this happen to me again? How could someone leave again? And it's so painful when it happens. But we're focusing on all of the wrong things because we're in a codependent relationship and we don't know what love looks like. And that includes self-love. We don't know what loving ourselves looks like. Had I gone to those red flags and been committed to actually looking at myself and recognizing that the reason I was looking, searching so hard for someone to love me was that because I didn't love myself, I could have saved myself years of suffering. I recognized that my abandonment wound was my deepest wound, and it was so big that it was consuming everything. It was consuming me, my relationships, everything. And once I was able to figure out that the abandonment wound was not going to be healed through codependent relations, it was not going to be healed through other people meeting my needs, it was not going to be healed through going and exploring outside of myself with several different parties or several different men or one intense relationship with a man or a marriage to a man, nothing is going to be enough. Once I realized nothing is going to be enough, And I looked within and recognized, wow, all of that was a signal. That was me trying to tell myself, girl, you are looking for love in all the wrong places. Your love is here inside of you. Once I recognized that I was just looking for my own self-love, To be loved by someone deeply, which was me. I was waiting to be loved deeply by me. That's the only point in which I could let codependency go fully. I mean, I had a lot of coping mechanisms and I had a lot of skills and tools that I used on my way. But until I had that aha epiphany moment, I could not let go of abandonment altogether. So... I used myself as an example and basically to say that we cannot get our needs met outside of ourselves. That's one thing we have to recognize in combating codependency is that ultimately in the long term, those relationships do not work. They cannot function in codependency. They cannot sustain. And really what we need to focus on is ourselves. So if we go back to boundaries for a moment, uh, because they do play into all of this, just like they do in all relationships, Uh, just because boundaries feel unfamiliar doesn't mean they're bad. Just like love at first and intimacy at first and honesty and accountability, all of those things can feel bad at first when they're unfamiliar. It doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that our brain is tricking us again. Remind yourself, hey... That's just my brain saying it's unfamiliar and so it's scared and it doesn't want to do that. It wants to go to the path of least resistance, which is the familiar, which is the things that I know are not healthy for me. So remember the boundaries may feel bad in the beginning, but they're very critical to your growth as a human being and to your growth in relationships. Similarly, just because healthy relations and love feel unfamiliar doesn't mean they are bad. Uh, on the contrary, what we're actually craving, remember, when we are utilizing codependency is love, is true connection. Uh, it's it's our own self-love, like in my instance, that we're craving, that we just don't know how to get. Uh, and, and remember that that self-love is not something that you just um, weren't born with either. That was something that was either conditioned out of you. Or we were not allowed or able to develop for whatever reason in our childhoods due to trauma or lack of modeling or whatever the reason may be. So this is not your fault. Again, don't hold any shame for this. We're talking about this now so that you can be made aware and that you can make changes and that you can heal yourself from these destructive patterns. So now that we've gone over codependency and how to recognize it and all that jazz, let's get into what does authentic love look like? Because that's really important and it's going to seem very unfamiliar to people who have been engaging in codependency all this time and they need to know what it looks like because they may not even know what it looks like. Because I can tell you I didn't for many, many years, many, many, like, many years into my marriage so yeah I don't want you to have to go through that so let's go through what authentic love looks like true love and intimacy in relationships comes from a place of selflessness I once heard that the feeling of an authentic relationship is easily described as enjoying someone else enjoying themselves so when we're enjoying someone else enjoying themselves that is a really high form of expression of love When you can sit and watch your child play, like, and let's say they're playing with bubbles outside, and they have that just pure joy look on their face, and they have that screeching laughter that only the deepest joy of play and being in the moment can bring. If you find yourself enjoying your child, just enjoying themselves with their bubbles in the present moment, that Is what true love feels like in any relationship. That feeling that you get when watching that and connecting with that is how true love really feels. So when we are enjoying someone who is, when we are enjoying someone else who is enjoying themselves, that is a high indicator of what love feels like. In it, we derive nothing but the satisfaction of knowing our loved one is in the highest vibrational state of pure joy. That's just another way of saying what I said before. So when you are enjoying someone like your spouse enjoying themselves, like say your spouse makes a joke and they're cracking up at themselves because it's just a silly joke and they think that they're really funny. And you just thoroughly enjoy that about them. And you You're thoroughly enjoying that moment that they're experiencing joy through themselves. And you think, wow, I'm so happy and grateful for them. And I just love them. I just love that for them. That is the highest vibrational state of pure joy for them. And that is an indicator to you that you're experiencing real love. Because you're not getting anything out of that interaction other than just joy from your partner experiencing joy, or your child experiencing joy. So that is a good way to kind of figure out like, okay, what does that love feeling feel like? It's not that intense pull between codependency when you're meeting each other's needs. It's not addictive, right? Love is not supposed to feel addictive. It's not supposed to feel like we need it, um, especially in a certain way in order to survive. Because really, the only need, the love you need in the world to survive is your own. But we'll go down that road another day. What you need to know is that that's what love feels like. And there are multitudes, a myriad of other ways that love feels like. I just didn't go over them. But that, that's the one that really resonates well with me. Now, other ways authentic love shows up in our relationships that we can keep an eye out for is equity in the relationship. So both partners have equity, equal say, equal emotions, equal feelings, equal um, responsibilities, just equity in general and autonomy. You have to have autonomy in relationships. Each person has to be able to be themselves in the relationship in a non-judgmental forum. So that's super important. Support or help in tough times. When we love someone, We will support them and help them through their tough moments, even when we're having tough moments. And I think it's important to understand that we don't forsake ourselves in those moments in order to care for the partner. That's not what love is. And we do often confuse the two. What we do is we take care of our partner in the way that we need to through help or support and we make time for ourselves. So it's not... Oh, I have to give up time for myself and give up myself to support the partner. No, 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 no. That's not a healthy relationship. What you do is you support and help the partner and take time for yourself and meet your own needs and do those things. Because we have to have a full cup in order to be able to help other people fill their cup. We can't give from an empty cup. We can't be the best version of ourselves whenever we have nothing left to give, right? So it's so important that we refill our own cup with self-care. We create time and space for ourselves. We don't abandon our values and the things that truly make us up and who we are in order to care for the other partner. We use all of the tools that we have, we utilize those things, we make room for self-care, we make room for ourselves, and we support and help the partner. We also encourage each other in the good times. We will offer to collaborate with one another. Hey, yeah, that's a great idea. How can I help you? How can I be a part of this? I would love to be a part of this part of your journey, this chapter of your life. How can I be a part of this? how can I support you? Encouragement in the good times. Aiding in or supporting personal growth journey. Like supporting a partner's choice to go back to school or supporting a partner's choice in, you know, their healing path. Anything that you can do that aids and supports in their personal growth journey is a plus. But again, remember boundaries. Remember Taking time for yourself. We want to do that and support our partner in their personal growth journey. Accountability in relationship on both sides. Whoo, accountability. I need to do a podcast on accountability by itself because I don't think people understand the difference between accountability, responsibility, um, you know, blame, all of these things that. that float around in our heads in our society all the time accountability in the relationship on both sides accountability just means holding yourself accountable for the things that you say and do in the relationship for your actions and your part in a relationship it's not meaning taking all the blame it just means that we have to recognize that our words and our actions impact other people And when we impact them negatively to recognize that they are the ones who get to say that we hurt them or we didn't hurt them with our words or actions. And when that situation comes up where someone has been hurt by our our actions or our um, expressions, that we take accountability and we apologize and we say, okay, you know, I am sorry, and we actually take accountability for those things. That's what accountability means. And that's what each partner has to do in relationship. Both partners have to have accountability. No one should self-abandon in this, re- in this relationship. So again, if you're having to forsake parts of yourself or put yourself on the back burner or you're not taking time to yourself, that is not what you should be doing in relationship. And a lot of the times, other people don't even demand this of us, and I think we need to be cognizant of that. I think we go into the relationship from the beginning a lot of the times, giving ourselves up, giving ourselves away, when the other partner is not even asking for that. So don't give yourself up. Don't give yourself away. Do not abandon yourself. There are healthy ways to navigate conflict between two people who have strong boundaries, and who have a good, established, healthy sense of self. Self Self-abandonment is not one of those choices. And lastly, safe space. You have to have safe space in the relationship of sharing emotions, thoughts, and feelings. And you have to allow for you to experience your own path and for your partner to experience their own path without judgment unsolicited advice or fear mongering you just do everybody learns through experience and if the partner asks for advice or asks for personal experience please share the partner is making it clear to you what they would like from you in this scenario but really we all just need a safe space to allow for growth and that's it that's what a relationship a loving relationship looks like is that we are creating space for each other to move on this human experience journey without fear of judgment or repercussions or uh, fear mongering. We just want a space to be, to be, to be held, to be loved, to be accepted, understood. That's what we're looking for, a soft space to land. So we are at the end of the podcast here, we've got a few more minutes left. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about combating codependency. So now that you know what a healthy relationship looks like and what codependency looks like, you can now figure out how to get yourself out of codependent habits and established in more healthy habits. So here we will figure out how to combat that codependency. First of all, you want to commit to working on yourself. That is true in any part of this healing journey and being a part of the human experience. And uh, I hate to say it, but it's it's hard work and it's just kind of like tough shit. Like <laughs> that's just part of part of the whole experience on this floating rock in space. So commitment to working on yourself. Only you can fix your codependent habits. Only you can look inside and get into alignment with self. So to reiterate, only we can help ourselves. Only we can do the work on ourselves in order to undo some of these habits that we've created. First and foremost... Self-love is important when we're talking about deconstructing codependency and codependent habits. So because of our need to feel loved and to seek out love, and that's the whole reason that we participate in codependency in the first place, we have to recognize that there has to be a lack of self-love for us to be going out and trying to find that outside of ourselves, So, whenever we come back to ourselves and we really take a deep look at who we are and connecting and getting in alignment with who we truly are, we can start to understand ourselves from a place of spirit. And in that moment, we can utilize self love. Okay. And we can give ourselves grace and we can say, I know I haven't always loved myself, I haven't always done the best at trying to figure this stuff out, but I'm doing the work now. Even as I sit here today, I am doing the work now. Listening to this podcast, you're doing the work now. So always remind yourself that you are doing the work and you're continuing forward and eventually you will see the fruit of your labor. Also, address your deepest insecurities. So while we're taking a look at ourselves, we need to identify what our insecurities are, how they're holding us back, and love on them until they wither away. So when we recognize that we have insecurities, and a lot of the times these insecurities come from bad programming from our past. So typically what happens is during childhood, we see apparent models to us kind of a bad program. So for a lot of women, we will see our mothers model the program of not feeling enough through the way that we look. And typically this shows up as like fat phobia or valuing thinness. And so since there's an inherent value of thinness that the society values right now currently is thinness and that's the fat and that's what the value is for society, We have a predisposition, whether we realize it or not, to want to be thin. We have the desire to want to be thin, mainly because we want to fit in. We want to be accepted by our peers. We want to be accepted by the people who love us. That also transports or uh, travels down to our children, So when we are actually looking in the mirror and saying out loud, gosh, I wish my body looked like this, or I wish I was less, um, I had less weight on me, or I wish that my shape was a different shape. um, Our children are listening. They're taking that in. So even when we tell our children, you're beautiful just the way you are, everything about you is perfect, don't change anything, they don't actually receive that message, because they receive the message that we are modeling as parents. And if we have our own insecurities, which for example, I was using the value of thinness. So if we have an insecurity around our size or our shape, that's going to transfer to our children. That's going to be in- Um, unintentionally passed down to our children. And so because we're modeling that to them, they think that their value also lies in being thin or achieving a certain body shape or type. And so that's why our insecurities matter. So in order to deconstruct those insecurities, we have to recognize that there are bad programs inside of our brains. So our brains are like big computers that run our body and our functions and also a lot of our thoughts and it affects our personality and our ego. And so in childhood, a lot of the times we are modeled these bad programs or we are actually conditioned to have these bad programs, either from abuse, or just watching another parent model this, or sometimes from just kind of that getting into our heads when we don't have an explanation for something else. And our childhood mind, or excuse me, our child mind is trying to come up with an explanation for something that happened or a situation that took place that we can't quite understand as children. So, It's really important to deconstruct those insecurities, figure out where they come from, figure out that bad programming or if it's bad programming and how it got there and really address that programming and say, you know what, I don't even value this. I know that society might value this, but I don't value this. And really work on removing that bad programming from your computer, your brain. So address your deepest insecurities. And the easiest way that we can deconstruct and the most effective way that we can deconstruct these programs is one, recognize their programs, recognize that they're not healthy for us and that they are not something that we value, and then love on yourself until these programs eventually stop running. And what I mean by that is, We can actually start loving ourselves the way that we are today. We don't have to lose weight. We don't have to become a different shape. We don't have to behave a different way. We can love on ourselves today. And what that looks like is acceptance. It looks like us saying, I'm trying. I'm doing the work. I love myself. And a lot of the times, because it's foreign, you're not going to believe it at first. And so there's a tool that I like to utilize called mirror work. And you can Google this and you can kind of figure out what mirror work is. But essentially, it's very basic. You quite literally look into a mirror and you start talking and having conversations with yourself and you work toward building a positive outlook and a positive conversation with yourself about yourself. And so mirror work is one of my favorites in building self-love because it actually only requires you and yourself and your reflection. Because when we're actually looking at ourselves, we can conceptualize this love. We can actually kind of see into our own souls through the mirror, through our eyes, and really connect with who we are inside And really showing that love to ourselves. So we have to remember that we have plenty of love to give. We really do. We have given so much love in our lives. Even if we don't recognize it as love. There are moments where we definitely give people love. And we have to learn how to accept our own love. That's really the barrier with self-love. It's not that we don't know how to love in a lot of instances. It's that we don't know how to accept our own love. And so what mirror work does is it shows us that it's hard, it's sometimes hard to conceptualize that we are a person, and we are a spirit and we are ourselves. And we should treat ourselves the way that we treat others. Because sometimes we don't always see ourselves as important as others. We're used to putting ourselves on the back burner and meeting other people's needs. And so it's very difficult for us to conceptualize that we are just as worthy, just as important as other people walking around in our lives. And so when we look in the mirror, it's harder for us to discount ourselves because we're sitting right there in front of ourselves. We really can't escape ourselves in our minds or intellectually or just kind of continue on with our day and kind of pretend we don't exist because we're sitting right there in front of the mirror. And so that's part of the reason why mirror work works is because we can actually see it happening. It's something tangible that we can connect to. The second reason that it works is because it enables us to practice accepting our love. So what I recommend And I don't know how other practitioners recommend, but for me, what worked for me and what I would recommend trying is that I had a really hard time accepting love when I felt like it wasn't genuine. So I did not say that I loved parts of myself at first that I really didn't feel like I loved or that I was crazy about, right? And so I did start out by picking the parts of myself that I really do appreciate the most. It felt more genuine and authentic to me to operate in that way. And as I continued on with mirror work, I realized that I did love all of those parts of myself. It was just a little tougher to get there, to really accept that love about those parts of myself. For whatever reasons, sometimes it was external pressures or things that I had heard as a child that made me believe that I really shouldn't love that part of myself. There's just a lot of hurdles that we cross when we're doing mirror work and we're, we're learning how to love ourselves. And so some of those things about myself that I didn't love so much, they had a lot of hurdles for me to actually address to get there. So I wanted to start somewhere where I would be successful really quickly. I would start to see benefits really quickly, and I would start to feel like was an authentic place for me to begin. And so I started choosing things that I really genuinely loved in that moment. So one of the things that I chose that I felt like it was really easy was my eyes. I felt like the eyes on most people are a gateway to the soul. They allow us to understand what people are feeling and thinking in certain circumstances. We can communicate with our eyes. I mean, everything about the eyes is just captivating to me. And so even my own eyes, I find a little bit, um, fascinating. And so it was easy for me to look in the mirror and say, I love my eyes. I appreciate my eyes. I am grateful for my eyes, the gateway to my soul. I am grateful that I have my sight and I can see and I can participate in this work. I'm So grateful that I am able to appreciate and love this part about myself. I love my eyes. And I would continue to build on that. And it would go from my eyes to maybe my hands, to my lips, to eventually parts of myself that were harder to love, like my stomach, to parts like my thighs, And then what's really interesting about mirror work is once you've started to really get into the physical part of it, because again, it's more tangible, you can see it when you're interacting with it with yourself, you can actually start doing mirror work that's more spiritual, more emotional. So you can look into your eyes while you're doing the mirror work and it feels a little uncomfortable at first if you're not used to it because you're like, why am I staring into my own eyes? This is a little strange but honestly, it's not strange. Why would we be comfortable staring into someone else's eyes for so long, people that we love, if we weren't comfortable staring into our own? It's not egocentric because that was my fear when I started. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm so arrogant. This is nuts. Why am I doing this? It's not a reinforcer of arrogance. It's not egocentric. What we're doing is we're deeply connecting with who we really are inside. We're connecting with spirit and we're actually allowing ourselves to see ourselves in our full light, in our full nakedness, in the present moment, in our quiet space with no judgment, in our safe place for one of the first times in our lives and that's very profound and it's very impactful to this journey and to your process so you can actually start doing mirror work with yourself internally and telling yourself I'm so grateful for my compassion I'm so grateful for my kindness I'm so grateful for, um, you can actually start doing this with even what you would perceive as some of your negative qualities, just like you do with your body. There were hurdles about getting to a place where you felt good about saying you loved yourself in that way. There are also hurdles about emotionally. Um, sometimes I, you know, I'm a highly sensitive person and sometimes I hated being highly sensitive because I just felt everything so deeply. And it was, it could be such an imposition at times because it's like very overwhelming, especially when we don't have good boundaries and we don't have a lot of practice. And so, as a highly sensitive person, occasionally I would feel burdened by that. And it got so much easier to say that I am grateful for my acute awareness and my high sensitivity because now I can be highly intuitive with myself and I can tend to my inner child and I can tend to the wounds that I have in myself because I'm aware, because I'm so self-aware, because I'm highly sensitive. And so we can actually take qualities that we weren't once so grateful about and eventually get to a place where We do appreciate them and we do start loving them. You can start loving yourself now. That's a big key to all of this. You don't have to wait. You don't have to change. You should and you can start loving yourself now. So I highly recommend mirror work because it's a tangible thing that we can use And it is definitely one of the top tools that I used in self-love and addressing those issues and getting my way out of my codependent habits. Get clear about your needs and how to meet them. So as you're going on the self-love journey through the mirror work and different things, you'll start to recognize that you have these needs that you need to meet Everybody has needs. We can't pretend that we don't have needs because that's just not a part of the human experience. All of us have needs. The key is to figuring out how we can actually meet those needs ourselves. So I love to recommend inner child work for this because a lot of our needs are rooted in what our inner child didn't get. So our inner child is basically the child that we carry around with us, um, all throughout our lives. And it's not just our young child selves. It's our, you know, middle years. It's our teenage years. We have different versions of the the inner child that we carry around with ourselves. And so what we need to do is make sure that we are honoring our inner child's needs when the inner child is screaming out like, hey, this thing feels bad, or I don't feel protected, or I don't feel safe. We need to stop and honor what's happening in the inner child, because those are our feelings. Those are the feelings of the past that are coming back that are now present because they're tapping into that inner child and her feelings. Excuse me. So we need to do some inner child work to get clear about our needs and how to meet them. And when we meet the inner child, she can often tell us what our needs are. And what's happening underneath, and how we can meet those needs. And not all of the time, not all of them are inner child needs. We have other needs that we've developed as adults that we just need to learn how to meet on our own. But really, we need to first identify those needs, and then we need to figure out how to get those needs met, and how we can meet those needs and not meet them with the external world or have other people meet those needs, because that creates more codependency. We really want to focus on how we can learn to meet the needs ourselves. And really, your biggest tools there are going to be using self-love and using inner child work for that. Reminding yourself that you do not need to do anything for anybody in order to be deserving of love. That's a big one. Reminding yourself that you do not need to do anything for anybody in order to be deserving of love. So you are worthy as you are. You are so worthy as you are. You deserve love. Most of all, you deserve your love. That love is within you. The love you often feel for another person is actually the same love you're generating for yourself. It's just that you refuse to accept that love for yourself for one reason or another, or that maybe you don't know how to accept that love for yourself. Maybe you were left with bad programming that made you feel like you were unlovable, or that something about you was inherently unable to be loved or unable to accept love. Or that you were bad and that you weren't deserving of love. Or that you weren't enough and so you weren't deserving of love. A lot of the time we get the feeling that we are not enough. Regardless of how it came into our lives or how it, it got into our programming, we do have this feeling of not enough. And I'm here to tell you today that you are enough. Period. Just existing, your existence as a human being entitles you to your own love, period. So, you need to learn how to accept the love that you generate for yourself. Remind yourself that your love is endless. That's another really important part to the self love process and accepting your own love because I kind of had this notion somewhere in my head that. If I'm loving myself so much, how am I gonna have enough love for my children and my husband and my friends and all the people that I love in the world and just spreading that out there? Like, how am I gonna generate enough? Your love is endless, it's boundless. It's uh, for people who have children, it's like, excuse me, it's like being able to love more than one child. When you have one child and you're pregnant or you're expecting another one, You're like, wow, I don't know how I'm going to love this other child as much as I love my, my child I have now. Because you just love that child so deeply in a lot of cases and you can't fathom being able to duplicate that again. It's just so much. And then when the second child arrives, it's instantaneous and you're like, ah, that's how it just is. I have enough love. I have so much love that I can just, I just have enough for everyone. So you have to remind yourself that your love is endless. You can generate enough for yourself and everyone around you and for the entire world. You have enough for you and all of those you love. Just remember that. The next thing is to strengthen your boundaries. So separate you from your partner. Okay, It's so important that we understand that we are separate beings. I cannot stress that enough. That's why boundaries are so important. They help us separate ourselves from others. So you can have a close and intimate relationship without being enmeshed. And I think that those of us who grew up in households where the dynamic was enmeshment, we believe that if we're not enmeshed, we're not loving. And that's just not the case enmeshment is not love codependency is not love making sure that we separate ourselves from others and that we maintain our autonomy and that we maintain ourselves and our uh, boundaries to ourself and our authentic truths of who we are is so important in relationship because we want to be able to create healthier relationships where we grow and love and go on journeys separate journeys but this you know Partnered journeys together, and we're not becoming enmeshed and just jumbling ourselves together and blurring the lines because that is not a healthy relationship, and we're not going to be happy in those kinds of relationships. The next thing is to prioritize yourself, and I know that that might seem counterintuitive, especially to people who don't uh, have a good understanding of self love and self worth. Prioritizing yourself is so important because we have to understand that we all have inherent value just by being here and being us. And if we don't prioritize ourselves, we're giving ourselves the message that we are not worth prioritizing, that we are not enough, that we we are reinforcing the bad programming, which says you're not enough, you're not lovable or whatever that programming is it's so important to recognize that you are just as important as someone else and we are all of equal importance. No life is more important than another. And so in understanding that, prioritizing ourselves becomes very important because we understand how sacred our being is. So only commit to healthy relationships and those who are making a concerted effort to do the same that's a way to prioritize yourself and to prioritize the autonomy of others so when we're only committing to healthy relationships and those who are making a concerted effort to do the same we are recognizing that we have value and that other people have value and that we only want to be in healthy relationship or in relationships where people are making a concerted effort to change things in order to be in healthy relationships because unfortunately a lot of the time when we are not in relationships that people are making an effort to continue on their path and they've stagnated a lot of the times the other partner who is continuing down the path and is doing the work has a very difficult time um, in relationship with the person who isn't doing the work because it feels like it's very one-sided. And whether that's the case or not, we can never truly know because we can never truly know what our other, what our partner is doing. But I think we can get a sense of what works for us and what doesn't. And I think that's where we need to be very clear on our boundaries. We need to be very clear on what we're um, willing to do for others and what we're not willing to do and what we are willing to to let other people do to us and what we're not willing to let other people do to us. And I think it's very important to commit to healthy relationships and those who are making a concerted effort to do the same, just so that we can kind of um, maintain that boundary of if this relationship isn't safe for me, I will not um, interact with that person. I will no longer be in relationship with that person or um, if this relationship is uh disparaging in any way to me or my character or who I really am, I can't be in a relationship with this person, and I can't maintain this relationship because those are boundaries that we have with ourselves or that we should be having with ourselves is we should be committing to saying I am committed to creating a safe environment for myself, I am committed to creating a space where I am not disparaged and I am not judged and I am in a loving and healthy space. So that's very important on this journey as well. As an aside, you know, building self-trust with self-love is very important. So what we, we need to do is know that you can trust yourself and your intuition to guide you to what is Right. So that's a really big one, especially for um, survivors of narcissistic abuse or different kinds of abuses where the person is manipulated, even uh, manipulated to the point where they don't trust themselves anymore. It's so important to rebuild your self-trust and rebuild your intuition and being able to affirm that you know what is best for you. Because when we start believing that we have the power and that we know what's best for us, we can take back that power. And we start to realize, hey, I really do know what's best for me. And we start to evaluate our values and how they impact us and how we make our decisions. And all of that intuition guides us in all of that um, decision making. And when we realize that we can trust ourselves to make good decisions, that we can trust ourselves to guide us to where we need to go, we recognize that we no longer need outside guidance and we never did. It's just that we were conditioned to believe that our manipulators, the people that were coming into our lives to manipulate for whatever reason, um, that was all just part of what they needed and what they were trying to do in relationship with us. And we no longer want to allow that. And that's a strong boundary to have. Like I no longer want to um, participate in this relationship that is manipulative. and, And this person is manipulating me because I now understand that I don't need that. It's not healthy for me. And I can also trust myself to make good decisions. And I don't need anybody else to influence my decision making. So it's super important to reconnect to that intuition and to get to that place of self-trust. Make sure to question, though, if it is your ego speaking to you or your soul self. Because our ego tries to convince us of many things. And sometimes the ego is also tainted with our bad programming. So it's really important to try to distinguish our ego and bad programming from our soul self. And one way to do that is the ego tries to convince, it tries to persuade, it tries to talk you into thinking that something should be the right thing. And when our intuition is speaking to us, it's much quieter. It's not trying to convince us of anything. Our soul self is quietly, peacefully, just knowing. Sometimes when you enter a situation and you just have this feeling of knowing, just really knowing something and you don't know why and you logically can't figure it out or you know you don't even have the impulse to try to logic it out you just think i just ah i just know this that's the intuition that's your self speaking to yourself in a way that you can know you can trust and that's you build trust on that intuitive force so make sure you ask yourself that question To close out our podcast, I went a little bit over today, but it was, I was really getting into it. I had a lot to share. So uh, to close everything today, self-sacrifice is not love. Self-abandonment is not love. The exchange of meeting other people's needs while others meet our needs is not love. Only through loving ourselves and working on opening ourselves to intimacy and the ability to be loved can we truly experience an authentic, loving relationship. So if you are really trying to deconstruct those codependent habits and you've had enough with your relationships not working out and you feeling resentment and you feeling abandoned and you having a lot of these negative feelings, it's super important to look deep within and to get in, into alignment and get in touch with who you really are, your spirit self. And this is not just like a this is not a religious thing or a like it's a little bit woo-woo I guess, but there is an intuitive self in there. Because your thoughts and what you're thinking are not you. You are the observer of your thoughts. And so, if there's an observer of thoughts, that has to be who we really are. And I like to call that who we really are our spirit selves or soul self. You know, um, I don't know if they're actually interchangeable, but I I do use those words interchangeably in this podcast. So, yes, when, when we connect with that, we build our intuition we start building that self-trust, recognizing, hey, I can make good decisions. I'm actually the only one that can make good decisions for myself. Building up that self-love, using that mirror work, using that inner child as a signal to us that, hey, something needs to be addressed here. By utilizing all of those tools and skills and really digging deep and getting into alignment with ourselves, we can deconstruct these codependent habits and actually become totally free from codependency. So I wish you luck on this journey. Uh, If you want to hear more about this or anything that I've discussed in the podcast, let me know. I'd be happy to do another one. And yeah, I'm very grateful for you. And thank you for sitting in with me on the talk about codependency And we'll see you soon here on Sunshine Wilder. Bye.